So this morning we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 15, but before we do that, I actually have uh, someone with us this morning. Uh, her name is Courtney Kratz, and Courtney's going to come up. Come on up, Courtney. Um, and Courtney has been with, uh, you've, been, you've been coming to Hilltop for a little over a year, yeah? Pardon me. And uh, when I first met Courtney, she, uh, she just struck me as somebody that truly uh, loved the Lord. And then she tells me, she says, hey, I'm going with YWAM. I'm going to go to Ireland, and I'm going to spend some time over there. And I said, when you come back, I really want you to tell me what you did. She told me her story of uh, going to Ireland, and then they actually went to um, Lebanon. And the story in Lebanon is really something. And so I wanted to give you a chance to meet Courtney and hear what, uh, what she got to experience through YWAM in, uh, in the Middle East. And, and Ireland. But uh, so before we do that, though, though, Courtney, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I grew up in Minden here. I went to Douglas High School, um, graduated in 2013, um, went to college in Montana, UNR, and graduated last year um, with a degree in rangeland ecology and uh, gave my life to Christ at 16. So it's been a few years now. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing that I really liked about Courtney is I, we became friends on social media and she had all these pictures of deer hunting and I went, wow, <laughs> I think I like Courtney even more. Um, anyway, um, what motivated you to go on the trip? What was the kind of the, why'd you, why'd you go? Yeah, um, well, my mentor told me about it uh, like last spring and I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. Um, I had this degree and I was like, didn't really have any plans what to do with it. And uh, looked into YWAM, and it seemed just like the perfect fit. I really always wanted to travel and live overseas. Um, I just really felt God calling me to this at the end of the day. Yeah. So, so tell us what YWAM is, and then how did they, how did they prepare you? Um, YWAM stands for Youth with a Mission. It's like a global um, ministry missionary organization. Um, and I did a DTS, which is a discipleship training school. Um, and uh, it's the first school that everyone in YWAM has to do in order to like move up. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, they do like three months of teaching in the, in Ireland and then you do your mission trip somewhere. Okay. And you said that that discipleship program was really beneficial to you. That was something that, that really impacted kind of the way that you thought and approached the, the rest of the mission. Yeah, it was incredible. It was like drinking from a fire hydrant of information for three months, just like throw you right in there. And, uh, every week it's a different topic. We're learning biblical truths and, uh, it was just absolutely incredible. It really prepared me for, for uh, Lebanon and as much as I could. <laughs> okay. So when, when you're over there, who, who did you work with? What were the people that you got a chance to interact with? Um, so in Ireland, um, we worked with um, an after-school Bible club with the kids. And then in Lebanon, we primarily worked um, with uh, Syrian refugee kids. We were partnered with a uh, church over there that had started a school a few years ago for the kids there. Because um, at that point in time, they were not allowed to go to Lebanese school because they weren't Lebanese. Um, and so we were working with the kids. They were like 6 to 12-ish. Um, and we were teaching them like math, English, science, and art. Um, it was incredible. Really loved working with them. And then um, we also tried to work with once a week um, with uh, Lebanese gypsy kids as well and just go interact with them and play with them. Mm. So, so tell me about the, the leaders, the, the heart of the leaders of this Le Le Lebanese church. Yeah, so the pastor and his wife really like, had this vision put on their heart from God years ago um, to like, reach out to the, the Muslim refugees from Syria. And, um, and that came in the form of the school with the kids. Um, so it's a place where the kids can come. It's a safe place where they can, they can come, they can be loved on, um, and they can learn not only like math and science, but they can learn about the love of the Lord and learn about Jesus and who this Messiah is. And um, 
and that, you know how to accept him. And a couple of kids actually have done that. So right, mm -hmm. and that was one of the things that you shared was I mean here's this group of Lebanese people, and and mm -hmm. here come these Syrian refugees into their country, and the the government itself says we don't have the resources to take care of the refugees, particularly no. for school. Yeah. And so this local church steps up and says, well, well, we want to provide those resources. Mm -hmm. We want to care for these kids. We want to give them an education. Mm -hmm. um, but it's going to be it's going to be a Christian group that's doing yeah. that. And the parents knew this. These Muslim parents knew they're putting their kids in a Christian environment mm -hmm. to learn. Um, and uh, out of that, they're, they're actually getting to meet Jesus. Uh, yeah. So this is amazing thing. This, this local church says, we're going we're gonna to take a need that exists for these kids, um, and we're going to meet this need because they need education. This is important. And it's more than education. You're feeding them. Yes. Uh, you're you're giving them clothing yep. and shoes and all sorts of different things. Um, and that was another thing you shared was that they, they got these Samaritan purse boxes. We've all packed those. Yeah. You got really to watch cool. them get unpacked. <laughs> yeah. um, so I it was kind of neat to see cool. that in a kid's hands over mm -hmm. there. Um, but out of that meeting some practical needs, here comes now we've built relationship and we care about you and you know we care about you. Now let's teach you about Jesus. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And there's kids that are coming to saving faith in Christ through yeah. that. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me, uh, and I know this is a hard question, uh, what's your favorite memory from the trip? Um, yeah, that's a very difficult question. So once or twice a week, um, we would go out and do home visits to the family. So we got to meet the parents and the other siblings um, of the kids of our school. And uh, there was one visit that I got to do. Most of my team was out with food poisoning, unfortunately. So it was just myself and the other female teachers. Um, but we went to one of the families that has um, three teenage daughters. And uh, they were a bit too old to go to our school, um, so we came there more consistently. Um, and we just got to have like a girls day for like two hours. Um, we just did like hair and makeup and just were girls. Like there was no Christian versus Muslim. There was no like age barrier. There was no just uh, cultural barrier or anything like that. Um, it was just a bunch of girls hanging out and like having fun. And that was just like a really cool moment for me because there was nothing to divide us. It was just a fun time. So mm, really right. enjoyed that with those girls. That's really neat. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I know this is also a difficult question, but what do you think, what was the biggest impact on you from the trip? Um, yeah, so I think just teaching and loving on the kids and talking to their families um, really impacted me the most. Um, I really learned that like kids are kids no matter where you're at in the world. Um, the same with people, um, you know, everyone really just wants the same things at the end of the day um, and the basics um, and love and uh, just hearing their struggles and their stories of escaping from a war-torn country that they didn't ask for um, was really impactful. I mean, these people have little to nothing. It's a struggle day to day um, and they, they're still super hospitable um, when we do house visits. They would just provide you with tea or coffee or fruit, and you know that's kind of what they had for that day. But they were always willing to give you what they had, um, and so just it really put into perspective what's important in life, um, you know, because they have very little, but they still um, work with that and they still try to find joy in the little things in life. So, yeah. Yeah. and where do you think God is taking you from here? So you've got the you've got yeah. your degree and you've got a you've got a job at the moment, but but. Mm -hmm. Is there, there's a heart to maybe go back and do this some more? Yeah, so right now God's actually taking me back to Ireland and Lebanon in the fall. Um, I was asked to come back as a leader and uh, through a lot of prayer and advice, um, decided I'm going back. So in September I'll be heading back to, to Ireland and leading a team of Christians into Lebanon. So I'm really excited to that, um, to, to mentor other young Christian women and um, 
and to lead a, a team of um, other Christians to Lebanon and, and share that same experience and to make more of an impact there too. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so when I sat down with Courtney, she, she had like what, 2,200 pictures. I don't know. It was a lot of pictures. That was and we, the pictures. We, we, went, we went through the pictures, and she shared this story with me in a lot more details. Mm -hmm. We talked for about an hour and a half. Um, so I would say if you want to talk to Courtney about this more um, and kind of what it, what it looks like for her to go back, and uh, maybe there's some needs that you have as, mm -hmm. as you head back that direction, and, and you, you think maybe you'd like to help with that, um, whatever the case may be, if you want to talk to Courtney, she'll be up here after the service, and you can ask her some more questions about it. Um, and uh, I'm sure she'd love to chat with you. Yeah, Let me you. pray with you right now. Uh, Father God, uh, Lord, Lord Jesus, we do thank you that uh, you care about each individual on the face of this earth. And uh, when you consider a child, uh, they don't know what war is about. They just know they're not in their home anymore. Um, and their world is falling, around, uh, falling down around them. And, and you think about the heart that you've given the, this pastor and his wife in Lebanon to take these children um, and their families who have lost pretty much everything, not of their choice, but just because of where they are. Um, and... Uh, You've put it on this, these, these people's hearts to love and serve and uh, care for and ultimately uh, share hope that is much bigger than any of those things, and that is your son, our Lord Jesus. And so I, I thank you that Courtney got an opportunity to experience that and be a part of that. I thank you that you're going to move her back in that direction, and you're going to use her to uh, build into other Christians who are then going to build into these children and these families, and she'll get an opportunity to do that again as well. Uh, Lord, this is your heart, um, to, to care for the least of these and look after people who truly uh, are in a position where maybe they can't look after themselves. And so we thank you for that heart, God, that you have that heart for us. Um, and uh, you, you truly are a good God, and you use people in mighty ways. And I pray that you would uh, continue to do that for Courtney as she returns to Lebanon in the fall. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Thanks Thank for you. sharing with us. Thank yeah. All right. So if you want to hop into your Bibles to uh, Ezekiel chapter 15, we'll, we'll look at this passage here. And uh, last week, shared this verse from 2 Corinthians to lead things off. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize of this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus in, is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? And so Paul puts it on our hearts as believers, um, or just those who maybe think we know God, to examine that. Is it actually true? Um, and we looked at these three categories, the, ca the, the, the convinced believer, the unbeliever, and the falsely assured Christian. Um, and the convinced believer, when they approach God, this is, we're going to talk about people's approach to God in this passage. Um, and when the convinced believer approaches God, they look at God and they say words like, He is my shepherd. Uh, you, you realize that God is, Jesus is alive in me and that I, I need Him. Uh, the unbeliever would say things like, God is not necessary. They may go so far as to say, as God is dead. And certainly the words would be, I'm good without God. One of the books that I, from, a, from a secular perspective that I think is worth reading, uh, he, talks about, he talks about good without God. That's the title of the book, What a, what a Billion Atheists and Agnostics Believe About Life. And, and he, as he goes through this book, his main point is, is we do not need him, and we are fully capable of making the world the very best that it could be without any concept of God. And so the unbeliever might say he's not necessary, he's dead, and, we, and, and we're good without him. 
The falsely assured Christian looks at God and, and thinks things like, God likes me when I obey. If I could just make him happy, if I could just get my life together and clean myself up, then maybe God would like me. And if he likes me, he'll probably give me what he has. And really, that's what I'm after. Uh, God is he's up in the clouds. He's, he's far. He's distant. So the convinced believer would say Jesus is alive in me. The falsely assured Christian, they, they look at God as somebody who's he's far, he's distant. He, he, maybe he cares, maybe he's there, but maybe he's not. And then the concept would, would be, you know, I need God. And, and the falsely assured Christian would say, I, I need him, but, but he probably doesn't want me. Uh, he, he probably, I, I, I could never be good enough for him. And we have a tendency to look at God as this judge. I had a couple conversations this last week, and one of the things that came up in these conversations was the idea of having hit rock bottom. And so, I don't know about you, have you ever hit rock bottom? Have you ever been in that place where just you feel despair? Maybe better said, what was the moment or time in your life, in your life when you felt the greatest despair? Think about that. In your life, what was the time or moment when you felt the greatest despair? What did you do with it? And who did you turn to? As we get into this passage, we're going to see that the, the people of Judah and the, and the people in Jerusalem, they're, they're right about to hit rock bottom. Things, things could not get much worse for them than they're about to get. And they ask a lot of questions. You know, they're asking why. And Ezekiel is there saying, because you've departed from the covenant. You've rejected who God wanted you to be. There's a book called Why Suffering. Vince Vitale and, and uh, Ravi Zacharias wrote it. And in one of the chapters, Vince Vitale writes this. And he's talking about Genesis. And he says in the, the opening chapters of Genesis, we find a story of people who, who deep in their hearts know God who also know what he asked from them. But then they hear this voice in their ears, and this voice says, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? They begin to doubt God. They begin to doubt that he knows what's best for him. They begin to doubt that he is for them. And ultimately, they begin to doubt that he has actually said his word. And then they sin. They do what they know deep down they should not do. Not a big sin, just eating a piece of fruit that they were told not to eat. No big deal, right? But it starts them down a path. And this path, we see that first they feel shame. Then they're convinced that God wouldn't want anything to do with them anymore, so they hide themselves from God. Maybe some of us can relate to that. Then they begin accusing each other. Adam points at Eve. She did it. In essence, he's pointing his finger at God. It's the woman you gave me. And then Eve points at the serpent and says, he did it. And this path that moves from temptation to doubt to disobedience to shame to hiding to finger pointing to suffering. Temptation, doubt, disobedience, shame, hiding, finger pointing, and suffering. And this is where the nation of Judah and the people of Jerusalem find themselves. They have walked this path. They 
went out after the, the temptation of false gods and living for themselves, ultimately, that's the ultimate temptation, is you decide what's right and you decide what's wrong. They, 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 they've gone through this. They felt that temptation. They've doubted God and they've disobeyed God. They've felt the shame of their disobedience and they've hidden themselves and they do things in secret and they're pointing their fingers at everybody around them but not owning their own issues and now they're going to experience some pretty great suffering. And if you look at your own life, you can find these patterns. Temptation, doubt, disobedience, shame, hiding, finger-pointing, and suffering. The great news is God has a rescue plan for all of it. So in Ezekiel 15, let's read the first five verses here. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men make a peg from it which to hang a vessel? If it has been put to the fire for fuel and the fire has consumed both of its ends and the middle part has been charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, while it's intact, it's not made into anything. How much less when fire has consumed it and, and it is charred, can it be made into anything? And so you have to be a little bit Jewish to get this passage. The Jewish people, they viewed themselves as the vine of the Lord. Uh, and because of this, they viewed themselves as sacred and indestructible. And what God is doing here is He's reminding them that they're not unique because of themselves. One commentator says, it's implicit in this parable as the prophet's response to those who imagine that Israel, as the Lord's vine, as, excuse me, as the vine of the Lord's planting, was indestructible. Cut down she might be, they thought, but it was only a temporary setback before the long stalk would shoot again and Israel would flourish as she had done in days gone by. Such naive optimism was the object of, of Ezekiel's incessant condemnation. Israel and Jerusalem were finished. And the reason they were finished is that they become neither useful or dependable. Uh, Psalm 80, Psalm 80, verses 8 through 16, it says, uh, You have removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and, took a, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadows and the cedars of God in its burrows. It was sending out branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all will pass that way and pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats away at it, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of, her, of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even, even, shoot, even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and the son whom you have strengthened for yourself, for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your continents, the way that you, your, your, the way your face is set towards us. And we see in this psalm that they're saying, we understand that we're yours and we understand that you planted us, but what we don't get is why are we falling apart? And Ezekiel's job was, he was to come in and say, this is why. This is why you're being burned. This is why you're falling apart. This is why you've become useless. Because you've rejected You've rejected the relationship that God wants to have with you. We see that the branch is, is present in verse 5, and it's been pruned and partially burned. This is, this is it's a, it's, it's not useful anymore. 
And it's an obvious reference to Jerusalem, which twice was invaded by Nebuchadnezzar, 605 B.C. and 597. Uh, So these are two times before that Ezekiel has now witnessed that Nebuchadnezzar has come in, and and Jerusalem's, it's, it's, it's charred. And the words, they, they anticipate the final destruction that's going to come shortly after Ezekiel is writing in 586 when the city is burned and looted and nobody lives there anymore. But these people, they were falsely assured. They thought, God has planted us. We're His vine. We have all these rights. And, and He certainly wouldn't take them away from us. And they'd forgotten the covenant that God had made where He said, if you, if you love me and obey me and keep my commandments, I'm going to bless you and we're going to be in relationship and it's going, to be, it's going to be really good. And because we're in relationship, these other things that I just asked you for are going to be much easier. But they'd rejected that relationship again and again and again. We don't actually want relationship with you, God. Uh, We want to be considered your vine, but we don't want to actually have to be under your care. And that is the condition of the human heart apart from Christ. The condition of the human heart is, I kind of want what you have, God, and I'd like you to protect me, and I certainly want you to make me feel good. Um, but I want to decide for myself what I get to do and when I get to do it and how I get to do it. Isaiah says it this way in chapter 5. He says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile, fertile hill. He dug all around it, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Look at who I am and my character and what I produce versus what my vineyard, these people that are intended to be mine, are producing. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? I gave it everything it needed. So let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste and it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. His people have moved from temptation to doubt, to disobedience, to shame, to hiding, to finger pointing, and now suffering. They find themselves in the depths of despair. They've hit rock bottom and they know it. And they don't have their God because they've rejected Him. And it hurts. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Do you know the point or time or season when you you doubted Him and you disobeyed Him and you felt shame? And you blamed other things. 
And you felt that despair and that distance from God. For different people, it's different things. Uh, talking with people this last week, for some people, we come from a religious background, and, and this is like me, I came from a religious background, and, and so I met despair when I finally, I, I, I knew God, and I trusted the cross, and I had relationship with Him, I truly believed that, um, but then I went through a period of rebellion, and the rebellion was no good. I said, I, I don't really want to do this anymore, this isn't good, and so I thought the way to end my rebellion was to try real hard. Right? I'm going to come out of this season of doing whatever I want, and I'm not going to do whatever I want anymore. I'm going to try and please God, but I'm going to do it in my strength. And that was far more despairing than the rebellion, because I couldn't do it. I remember I, I, it was in, I was in college up in Reno at the time, and the, the room that I lived in, I don't know why it was like this, but the closet doors were whiteboards. And so I got this marker, and I wrote all these verses, a verse from Matthew, and, and all these verses, and I was reading them, and I had all the, this checklist on the, on the whiteboard of what I was going to do each day to be pleasing to God. And I'd get to the end of the day, and I'd look at it, and most of the time I hadn't done half of what I wanted to do. I'd given in. My flesh was weak. It was incapable of pleasing God and keeping His commandments. And that was great despair. So for some of us, it's a religious thing, and, and we tried to do the religious thing, and, and, and man, it just didn't work. And I talked with somebody else this week that they were, they were raised in a situation where they knew God not at all. I mean, people around them kind of had an idea. They got an idea of who God was, but they didn't really understand Him. And so they lived their life absent of the presence of God. And so for them, it became this crushing emotional weight of their circumstances. Just everything that they had been through uh, caused this, this tremendous despair. This person hurt me, and that person hurt me, and uh, this situation happened where I lost something so valuable to me, and, 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 and the despair was overwhelming. Sometimes it's an emotional thing, sometimes it's a religious thing, sometimes it's an intellectual thing, and, and we need to come to believe the right things. But when you believe the wrong things and, and, and you've got the wrong information and you're following the wrong information about God and, and you go after it hardcore, uh, you find out that it, it, it falls short of who He truly is and that can lead to despair as well. I think if you think about it, you could remember your season of life or that specific moment when you said, that was my rock bottom. And don't compare yours to somebody else's. Well, somebody else had a much worse rock bottom than me. That's not the point. The point is, what was your moment where you said, or season of life where you said, I don't want to do this by myself anymore? Jerusalem and Judah have met this moment. Verses 6 through 8 here, we see, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given for the fuel, for, to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I have set my face against them. Uh, 
Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. The previous two times that Nebuchadnezzar came, they came out of that, but it will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate, because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. As frequently stated elsewhere in Ezekiel, God's purpose and his actions is that the people acknowledge that these events are the work of the sovereign Lord, the God who's in control of everything, of the historic covenant with Israel. Ezekiel is saying God is doing exactly what he said he would do with you, Israel. He wanted this relationship with you. You've rejected this relationship with you. He said if you rejected that relationship with him, he would cause suffering. You would receive the rightful repercussions of your actions and your unfaithfulness. And so then we, we have to kind of come to grips with what is the Bible about, right? What is the Bible about? When I read this thing, what's it all about? And when you read the Bible, what you see in the Old Testament is that God was working with the people to reveal His character, His, His, His will, and ultimately one of the things that God was working to reveal was that mankind is incapable of pleasing God in our own strength. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3. He says, Therefore the law has been given our excuse me, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Why did, why did I give Israel a covenant? Why did God give Israel a covenant that said, I want you to live this certain way, and if you don't, there's going to be consequences? Why did he do that? Because he wanted to show them that if you try on your own, which I know you're going to, and when you try on your own to, to do things your own way, in your own strength, what you're going to find out is you cannot live up to my holiness. And when you find that out, you'll realize you need a Savior. When you find yourself in that pit of despair where you have tried everything to stand on your own two feet, be it a religious way or an irreligious way, whether you tried to stand on your own two feet and do all the right religious things or whether you said, never mind this religious stuff, I'm going to stand on my own two feet and do whatever I want, uh, whatever the case was, eventually both those paths lead to despair. This place of life without God is no good. And that is the moment when God steps into people's lives. And as one of the ladies in small group des described it, she said, I reached out my hand and he just pulled me out of that pit. And she said, it's awesome. But now faith has come, Galatians 3. But now faith has come and we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if... And for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed, your, clothed yourself with Christ. So the law was there so that you could learn you need Jesus. You could learn that you need a Savior. Why is God doing this with Israel? He's showing them in, in the most, <laughs> seems kind of out there way to us, but He's showing them you need a Savior. John chapter 1 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized. Oh, 
There it is. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You move forward in John and Jesus. He, so here's this vine imagery. And the vine imagery for the Jewish people, as they said, we're God's vine and he's going to use us to produce his fruit. He's going to use us that way. And then Jesus shows up in John 15 and he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Not, not we, not us. I am the true vine. Not Israel, not Jerusalem, Jesus is the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. We've got a berry bush in the front yard, and you've got to do this, right? There's branches that stop producing, or yeah, branches that stop producing fruit. You cut those off, you throw them in the garbage. Um, the other ones that are producing, you trim them so that they're not wasting their energy on producing leaves, and they can produce fruit. That's what God does to us. He takes the areas in our lives, and he says, "This is not producing fruit. It's dead. Let's cut it off." And that's when we go, "Ow! What are you doing, God?" He says, "I'm caring for you." I long for you to be something far more than you could be on your own. So let's take that. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So here's these Jewish people. It's our job to produce fruit. It's our job to, to, to figure out how to live this life. It's our job to keep the covenant. It's our job to make God happy. And all that did was lead them to a place of crushing despair. And then Jesus shows up and he says, it's not your job. It's not your job. Never has been. It's always been about relationship with me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And they probably went, we know. And if you've lived a religious life and you, lead, you read that line and you go, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're honest with yourself, you go, I know. I can't do it. If anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away as a branch dries up and they gather them and they cast them in the fire and they're burned. It's not a statement of you can lose your salvation. It's just a statement of uh, when you're not abiding in Christ, the life that you're living is a life that burns up. It amounts to nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. I'm going to give you my heart and you're going to ask me for things I wanted to give you in the first place. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove yourselves to be the vine of Israel. No, so you prove yourselves to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that you may have joy, so that joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. I want you to think about that sequence again. Temptation, did God really say? Doubt, is that really his word? Disobedience, I'm going to do what I want. Shame, I did what I wanted and my heart told me that was not it. 
I'm going to hide from God. I'm going to blame other people. And I'm going to experience suffering. And ultimately, it's because I've rejected the relationship that God longs to have with me. That's the choice. I'm rejecting the relationship that God longs to have with me. And when you reject that, it leads down a path where everybody else is the bad guy and you experience suffering. So Jesus says, I'm the vine. This is an outrageous statement. I, not we, are the, I am the true vine. God planted Israel as his vine to demonstrate through them that humankind is not capable of living as we ought to without him. We are incapable of living up to the ultimate standard that God has for us without him. We don't have what it takes. Jesus makes real and manifests what everyone longs to be. He makes real this relationship uh, that we have with God, and He manifests, He brings about the deepest longing of my heart and who I long to be. The unbeliever and the falsely assured Christian can only produce worthless fruit. Through a Savior, King, and God, we can produce lasting and growing fruit. One of the main points of the Old Testament is that we desperately need God. One of the main points of the New Testament is we need God and we have Him through Jesus. The nation of Israel in Ezekiel's time was experienced the height of their need, or the depth, of their need for God. Today and into eternity, we experience the height of relationship with God through Jesus. This is what God has brought about through the course of human history. The first man and woman, they doubt him. They, they, they question him. They disobey him. They blame everybody else. They're shamed and they hide themselves from God. And they experience the consequences of breaking relationship with God. And we all have sense. Everybody's followed that same pattern. And so God steps into human history and he says, I don't want this to be my creation. And so I'm going to show my creation their need of me, and I'm going to do that through the nation of Israel. And through the nation of Israel, I'm going to give them right, and I'm going to give them wrong through Moses. I'm going to give them the law. And as they, tr as they attempt to follow the law, what they're going to find out is they can't do it, and they need me. They can't, they're going to find out they can't stand on their own two feet, and they need me. And then when Jesus shows up, they're going to look at Jesus, and they're going, aha. This is what we've been waiting for. And so we look at the course of human history and we, we, we see the aha moment in retrospect. This, look at what God has done. Look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and He's shown me my need of Him. And He's now shown me through Jesus that I can have relationship with Him again. I'm not the vine. I'm not the producer of life, of fruit and, and all that I long to be. But Jesus is, and he wants relationship with me. And so what I'd like you guys to consider, and maybe talk about this over lunch, or if you've got a small group, talk about it. What was your rock-bottom moment? What was it for you? Was it religious performance, religious performance, religious performance? Uh, I put on the mask, and everybody thinks I'm pretty good, but I know, I know I'm not. And it's crushing me.
Was it something else? Not, not religious, but irreligious. And you said, I don't, I don't have any need for God. He doesn't matter. We'd be better off without him. And I'm going to go do what I want, how I want, when I want. And the ultimate thing that you find is that when you disobey God's standards and you say, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want, uh, eventually consequences follow. Because God knows what's good. He knows what's best. And he's laid that out for us. And, but we reject it and we say, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want. And then things happen and we get crushed by those events. Maybe that's your story. For me, it's much easier to say I had an intellectual problem. I just didn't know the right information. And if I'd have just known the right information, I could have, I could have figured it out. But then, did you hear what I said? I could have figured it out. Education. And so a lot of times it's easier to say, well, I had this intellectual, I just didn't know the right facts. But the fact of the matter was what broke me was not me having the right information. The fact of the matter was I, I just... I. I <laughs> I was no good at doing the right thing even when I had the right information. And it hurt. I got hurt by other people. I hurt other people. And you feel this place of depression and you think maybe your life isn't worth very much. And that's where God grabbed me. He pulled me out of that situation and he sat me down actually in a seat in this room. And he used somebody teaching the Bible to share God's actual desire for relationship with me. And from that point forward, it's been different. It's been totally different. So what's yours? Who needs to hear it? Who do you need to share it with? What's your story? What's your rock bottom moment? When did God grab you and pull you out? Because if you've tasted that, if you've, if, you've, if you've felt that, and you know God's embrace in that way, there's somebody in your life that God says, I want you to go tell them. I want, you to, I want to use you to guide them out of that place and lead them to me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love and your kindness, the, the good intentions of your heart towards us. I thank you that you removed my, my silly notion that I could figure it out without you, that I could do it on my own. And the fact, it was just never enough. It didn't matter. It didn't matter if I did everything wrong. It didn't matter if I tried to do everything right. It didn't matter if I indulged my flesh as much as I could. It didn't matter if I tried to restrict it as much as I could. It was never enough. And then I met you. You are good. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.